Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. For the Lord sits in throne forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among them the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction for those who hate me. O you who lift up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot he has caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. To wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. Haggaion, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forgot God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and impression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him in his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see for your note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. O Lord, the King is forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. 
O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that men who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The last passage is from 2 Peter, chapter 3, starting from verse 1. To Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days uh, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that they existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but they all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, you promise in your word to speak to us. And so we pray that you will do that now, here at this time. May your spirit lead us into all wisdom, that we might trust you with the whole of our lives. For in Jesus' most precious name we ask these things. Amen. Don't put all your eggs into one basket. This old proverb first appeared in print in 1615 in the novel Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. It's a fairly basic proverb and a very simple message. Don't risk losing everything you have by having only one plan and depending on it for entirely for success. Tell that to Tanner Broadwell and Nikki Walsh. Uh, this couple, and I might add they are a millennial couple, from Colorado decided in 2017 to escape the rat race, sell all their worldly possessions, and with their life's savings, pour it all into an already 49-year-old boat. Their plan? Live in it for a few years and see where life drifts them to. After months of preparation, they set sail. 30 minutes later, they hit a sandbank and their boat sank. All their eggs in one basket, sinking 
before their eyes. Now, I think we hear that story and you kind of feel a mix of feeling sorry for them and at the same time wanting to gently slap them upside the head and lovingly yell at them for being so stupid. And so the saying goes, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your money, all your hopes, all your future into one thing. And while I don't exactly have evidence for this, I think this idea transcends cultures and history. We all know that this is an unwise thing to do. And yet, David, in Psalms 9 and 10, is telling us to do exactly that. To put all of our eggs into one basket. To put all of our hope in God. Especially in the face of this rampant wickedness. A wickedness that preaches a rather convincing sermon that God does not see nor care about the ways of this world. And so in these Psalms, David gives us a big and massive reminder that even though all our hope eggs are placed in God's basket, they are safe and they are secure right there. Now before we get into the passage and the details, uh, quick question, why are we looking at two Psalms today? Uh, First, it's helpful to remember that the Psalms are not chapters. Uh, When we open our Bibles and we see chapters and verse numbers, uh, they were not there in the original manuscripts. Most of the uh, authors of the Bible uh, wrote letters, full letters, or long narrative stories. Uh, I'm not saying these chapters and verse markings are wrong, and they are very helpful, but chapters, markings, and verse numbers, they were inserted around the 16th century. Uh, But the Psalms have always been numbered, which is why we don't call them chapters. We don't say Psalm chapter 2, we just say Psalm 2, because Psalms have always been individual. Today we're looking at two psalms because it's pretty clear in the original Hebrew language that these two psalms are meant to sit side by side and be read together. Right? Psalms 9 and 10 form an acrostic. It's a poetry device where every line uh, of, the, of the poem, each line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so in Psalm 9 and 10, we get that. Last week we looked at Psalm 3. We saw that it had a heading. That heading gave some historical background and context. Today's psalm, as with many psalms, doesn't have a heading, which kind of indicates that the exact context of the psalm not only is not known, but it's not crucial. The historical context is not crucial to understand the content of the psalm. So, what can we clearly see? We can clearly see in the opening verses of Psalm 9 that David is a happy boy. Right? Every line of the first two verses begins with, I will, and is coupled with, I will give thanks. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult. I will sing praises. Now, the first step in this psalm is a, is a step of joy. A wholehearted joy which overflows you. Jump over to Psalm 9, verse 11. Verse 11 in that same psalm. And David, again, exhorts his readers to sing praises to God and tell everyone all that God has done. There is, there's this wholeheartedness in David's joy and thanksgiving. We've got a picture of a man who has had his whole life filled and is now overflowing with joy, which is a really different picture of David compared to Psalm 3. Did I just disappear? Or is that just me? Testing, one, two, can you hear me? All right, cool. Now, 
So, Psalm 3, we saw a very different picture of David. Actually, a very different picture of David compared to Psalms 3 to 7. I don't know if you've got your Bibles there, quickly flip with me through uh, Psalms uh, 3 to 7. Uh, we'll begin at Psalm 4. We'll just look at the first uh, verse in each of these Psalms. So, have a look at Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Uh, Psalm 8 sticks out a little differently, but in general, you can actually see that the opening to these psalms have a a lament or a sadness quality about them. All of these psalms in a row. Now we got to ask, why is David so happy here in Psalm 9? I did my studies at a place called Queensland Theological College. It used to meet at Emmanuel College, which is right next door to the University of Queensland. Often for lunch, uh, the staff and the students would walk together over to Hawken Drive, which is a little village right near the university, and with a whole bunch of restaurants. How many of you guys had lunch, lunches often with your tutors and your lecturers? Anyone? Well, that's the culture that we had at at QTC. It was wonderful. Now, one of the regular options chosen for lunch was a Thai place called Thai Nakonlana, owned by a a guy named Patrick. Patrick would see students and staff of QTC come regularly, laughing and enjoying their lunches together. Week after week, he saw the same thing, laughing and enjoying each other. Uh, Their overflowing joy piqued his curiosity. He asked one of the group members, why are you guys always so happy? I want what you have. We're going to ask the same question of David here. Why are you so happy? Gosh, I want what you have. Well, you see in point two that David's joy is rooted in the judgment of the wicked. As he read, throughout all his life, David knew what it was to be surrounded by and chased by and cornered by enemies. Time and again, he knew, sometimes very personally, the wickedness of this world. And yet here, in 9.3 to 10 and 9.15 to 20, we can see some patterns and some repeated themes uh, of what hap- what's happening here. You can see this idea in, in, this, in this psalm of falling over, that David's enemies and the nations stumble and perish in verse 3. They fall into the pit in verse 15. They trip over and uh, in their own traps also in verses 15 to 16. Uh, these, these poetic metaphors are all there to say that the power of these nations is being stripped away and they are lying down on the ground assuming the position of a vanquished foe. If you ever get yourself into a fist fight, I'll give you one tip. The worst place to be is lying on the ground. Get up. I'm hoping you don't ever get into a fight. I'm just saying. Right? So... This picture here is of God standing over his enemies lying on the ground. You see the idea of sitting. See, while the enemies of God are falling over and and trying to rise back up, God is seen sitting on his throne in verse 7. And he's not there just sitting doing nothing but judging the world. You see in verse 7, you've got this picture of stability. 
When all the enemies are lying down or being thrown down, God is sitting upright, immovable, unshakable, the one delivering the judgment. Uh, The idea of judgment is also seen in verse 8 and verse 16 and verse 19. God judges the world from his throne in righteousness. There's no decision, decision that is going to be made that is unfair or unjust. There is going to be no miscarriage of justice, only what is right. And finally, you see this picture of a stronghold in verse 9. A stronghold is a place of totally secure refuge. Uh, A few months ago, I was walking through Tawong, uh, the shopping center just down the road, uh, and I noticed this new store. It had an open front, no doors to walk through, a big, long communal table, stools, fake grass in the middle of the table, old-school brick and wood, panelled walls, bookshelves and big lamps. I walked in and I thought, wow, a new cafe that Ben and Merv haven't been to yet. I've got to check this out and boast to them that I've been there. And it turns out it was a Bank of Queensland branch. I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but bank architecture used to be way more intimidating. Uh, There used to be these big brick buildings with small windows, and it was meant to portray and project an image of safety and security. Your money is secure in this building. It is a stronghold for your money. Churches used to have that same design. Big brick buildings, small windows. Your soul is secure in this building. This is a stronghold for souls. But David doesn't make that mistake. He knows better. No building is impenetrable. But those who know God put their trust in him and find shelter in him. God is the stronghold for their lives. And if God is the one on the throne, and if he is the one who executes judgment, if he is the stronghold for his people, then it would be utter insanity to trust in anything else. But you see, that's what the wicked do. So as we turn to Psalm 10 we see the opposite picture now. Psalm 9 is filled with all these positive images about what God is like and what he's going to do. And Psalm 10 is is like the counter of that. It focuses on the wickedness of the wicked, their actions and their motivations laid out before us. And again, through Psalm 10, you kind of see a few themes pop up through the passage. You see the attitude of the wicked on display. In verse 1, you see their arrogance. In verse 3, you see their pride. They are so pumped and full of themselves that they say in verse 6 that they shall not meet adversity. Nobody is going to defeat them. No one is going to give them a hard time. You can see their oppression throughout the psalm. In verse 8, they sit in ambush. In verse 9, they lurk to seize the poor. Notice the, the metaphor in verse 9 of a crouching lion hidden in hiding in wait. Right, these guys, they are planned and they are dangerous. Uh, verse 10, they're helpless are crushed and fall by their might. It is a weak person who plans and then attacks poor people. And yet this is what the wicked are like. And they seem to have a a rather complicated relationship with God. In one breath, they are cursing God and renouncing God in verse 3. And in verse 4, they're proudly proclaiming, there is no God. But then in verse 11 and verse 13, they, they kind of backtrack from that. And it sounds like they're trying to convince themselves that, Maybe God's just forgotten about everyone. He, he doesn't see what we're doing. He's never going to call us to account. 
Uh, do they believe in God or not? The description of this kind of complicated relationship with God reminds me of Richard Dawkins. Uh, Dawkins is one of the most well-known, loud and proud atheists of our age. And he's argued recently in one of his latest books that educated people necessarily drop their beliefs in God, which implies that if you continue to believe in God, you are uneducated. He's also argued that it is unnecessary to believe in God in order to build a moral society, But then he came out recently and said that while he thinks that belief in God is childish, it does seem to make people behave, and maybe it is therefore good for society to have people who believe in God. How he gets away with such a contradiction and an inconsistency in his position, I have no idea. But coming back to the wicked in Psalm 10, David also notices that they seem to be getting away with their evil. It seems that in all their evil, they have the upper hand, which is probably why in Psalm 9, David is full of joy and rejoicing. But then when you open Psalm 10, he asks God, why do you appear to be distant and hiding yourself? In the face of such rampant wickedness, why are you not acting? But come to verse 14 of Psalm 10, and David remembers a profound truth. God does see and he will act. He sees in verse 14 God taking notes. Every mischief, every vexation, every evil deed, he notes it down so that one day he will take matters into his own hands. He sees there in verse 14 that the victims and the poor, they commit themselves to God. They trust him. They find in God their stronghold and security when the wicked smash against them. And he sees in verse 15 God breaking the arm of the wicked. Kind of another moment of the smashing of the teeth that we looked at last week in Psalm 3. But here, it's a clear metaphor for the destruction of their power. He sees in verse 16 that God is king forever and ever. Nations and powers, they come and they go, they rise and they fall, but God remains. Here in verse, he sees in verse 17 and 18 that God hears the cries of the afflicted and, and the oppressed. He will give them justice and he will get rid of the wicked so that they cannot strike any more terror. And this is not wishful thinking. This is not hope against hope in the face of evil winning the day. This is a hope built on the experience of history, of God acting previously to save his people in the book of Exodus, of empowering his people in the times of Joshua and the judges, even in David's own life. He ran from Saul and through that drama uh, that came after, God proved time and again to be faithful in executing judgment. And God's people would do well to remember that. In the light of who God is and what he has done and what he will do, to fail to trust him and to entrust yourself to him is... Insane. Why should we trust him? That was actually the question that Steph, my wife, asked me. See, it was a quiet Thursday morning. Our doorbell rang, and on the other side of the doorbell was a big Samoan man in high visibility gear. He was door knocking the neighborhood. Hey, boss, just door knocking and wondering if you need any trees to be cut down. I showed him some palm trees just near our front gate that I've been thinking about getting rid of for a while. We haggled a price, and I agreed to let him cut them down. 
I closed the door, and then Steph asked, "Who was that?" Oops. I had failed to consult with Steph on whether or not we should hire these guys. So my first line to cover that up was,、uh, "You won't believe the price that I just got," and it didn't work.、Uh, quick as a flash. She peppered me with all these questions: Who are these guys? Do they have a license to do this? What are their qualifications? Does he have insurance? What happens if the tree falls on the house while they're cutting it down? Turns out fine. Turned out fine. I dodged a bullet, and but I'd like to think that I'm a, just a brilliant judge of character. The the truth is, I didn't have any answers to any of those questions. Why should we trust him? I really didn't know. Why should we trust God? See, David's been telling us that God is King, ruling and reigning from His throne, the Judge of the world, the one who will bring justice. Why should you trust Him? Because God's got a proven track record. He's done these things before. And even as the wicked around you are getting away with their evil and prospering, you should keep trusting your God, because they will not keep getting away with their wrong. So imagine earlier I mentioned that there's no headline or, or you know, subtitle to this psalm. So this psalm has a kind of a universal context. In David's time, as David was writing this, he would have been thinking, he could have been thinking about Saul. He could have been thinking about the enemies and the nations around. But you imagine reading this in the time just before the exile, asking God, God, why are you allowing the evil of your own people to continue to be rampant? Why do you hide yourself? Do you not see how evil your own people are? And then after the exile and into exile they go, remembering that God is judge, and that He will execute His judgments. So here's the main point of this psalm. Here's what this psalm, these psalms are all about. The hope of God's people is not just to just trust God, but to trust that He is the one who will judge and execute that judgment. He will save His people through. Judgment. Now, the, how do we understand this main point of these psalms as Christians in 2019, nearly 2020? It's to see that the hope of God's people today, and and everything spoken about God in this psalm, we can see in the New Testament in Jesus. Jesus matches all the character. And actions of Psalms nine and ten spoken of God, and the actions of God's people in these Psalms is matched by Christians towards Jesus. And if that's true, then responding to Jesus is of crucial importance to all of us today. So, friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure, then these the main point of these Psalms is to warn you. That there might be trouble ahead. See, Paul says the same thing to a group of Greek scholars in Acts 17. He says this: "The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? The man appointed there in verse 31 is Jesus. Jesus is the judge of this world. And at some point in the fixed future, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Now the evidence that this will happen is given by the resurrection. Paul says that God has given assurance that this will happen by raising this appointed man from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is certain proof that judgment is a certain future for all of us. And just like in Psalm 2, you can kiss the son by trusting him and, and bowing down before him, or you will be judged by him. And if Jesus is returning one day, then we've got to respond to that now. Mathematician Blaise Pascal came up with an interesting argument that helped persuade him to trust Jesus and the Gospels. And the argument became known as Pascal's wager. And it goes something like this. Say you don't believe in Christianity, and say Christianity is not true, then you lose nothing. Nothing happens. But let's say you do believe in Christianity and it turns out to be not true. That's not bad, right? You've lived a good life, you've loved people around you, you've served them, and hopefully you've made your part of the world a better place. Now let's say you do believe in Christianity and it turns out to be true. Well, it's win-win. Right? You've gained everything. You've lived a good life now and you're gaining eternal life to come. But if you do not believe in Christianity, and it turns out that Christianity is true, well then you've lost everything. So where are you going to put all of your eggs? Earlier I told you about Patrick from Thai Nakonlana. He asked the QTC students and staff why they were so happy. Over the years and the months later, students began sharing the gospel with him and staff gave him a Bible. And I found out recently that he got baptized and he's now attending a church on the south side of Brisbane. Now I know life for him hasn't been great, but he put all his eggs into Jesus' basket. And I don't think he regrets that for one moment. So what about you? Where are you gonna put all your eggs? For the Christians here, those who do trust Jesus and are seeking to follow him, I think most of us recognize that we live in a world in which wickedness and evil do seem to have the upper hand. And thank God for our countries and governments that are, by his grace, stable and working. But when you turn on the nightly news and you see what's happening around the world, it's not hard to see places around the world where corruption and wickedness thrive. And on top of this, if you receive newsletters from the persecuted church or organizations that support the persecuted church, like Barnabas Fund or Voice of the Martyrs, you'll read hard and painful stories constantly of Christians struggling to stay alive because of their faith, of Christians who are persecuted, who are stoned to death, who are outcasts simply for believing Jesus and following him. When you read these stories, you might cry with David in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do the wicked continue to prosper? Why do your people continue to suffer and you not answer? 
Have you gone, why have you gone quiet? Why are you so distant? And here is where Peter echoes what David has said in these Psalms. We read that earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3. See, there we saw scoffers not too different from the wicked scoffers in these Psalms echoing their words. Where is Jesus? Where is this Jesus of yours? It's been ages since he promised to return. Look at the world. It's moved on. Are you going to be left on the wrong side of history? And it can be tempting to buy into that way of thinking, thinking that Jesus doesn't see, he doesn't care, he doesn't understand. His return doesn't really feel like it's going to happen. And then you just start to focus on this life. You, you just focus on building your material wealth and possessions, your, your status, your comfort. You make sure that you've got a good job. You go to church, sure, you add that, but real life is found outside of Sunday. It's found in your passions in life. And so you diversify your trust. You put a little bit of trust in Jesus' basket, and then you take a few eggs out just to make sure that you're safe. But Peter gives a strong warning. He says this in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 3, that scoffers have forgotten that God has judged in the past. He did that in the days of Noah when he deluged the planet with water. And if God did that in the past, then he will surely do it again in the future. And then he gives an encouragement in verses 8 and 9. God is patient. His timeline is not like our timeline. And in fact, he's actually patiently waiting for people to hear the gospel and repent. He mercifully gives time so that we can respond to the good news of Jesus. And then finally, Peter gives the final word of encouragement. What should we do in the meantime while we wait for Jesus' return? If we know that judgment is imminent, if we know that we're going to trust Jesus, what does it look like now waiting for him to come and to judge? Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Peter 3, and we're going to read verse 11 together. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, right? So, so the earth and everything in it is going to be all judged and made anew. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? See, there it is. What does a life of trusting Jesus look like? It looks like holiness and godliness. Our trust isn't just saying you believe it. It's living in response to that belief. It's saying that what you believe, that you, that you believe the gospel and that you're shaping your entire life around it. What does holiness look like? We just spent a whole sermon series looking at that. So please jump online and have a listen to our sermon series in Leviticus on holiness. But friends, here's the main point. Sometimes trusting Jesus feels like you're standing on a sinking boat. Especially when you see everyone around you prospering. And you're going, why am I here not earning big bucks like everyone else? Why am I here sacrificing my personal time, sometimes for ungrateful people at church? Why am I here trusting and believing in something that everyone makes fun of me for? 
But you see, putting all your eggs in Jesus' basket is not only the right thing to do, but it's worth it. And we're going to keep seeing that as we explore these psalms over this Christmas break. Let me pray. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've sent your Son into this world. He took the judgment in our place and he is raised back to life to be the judge. So we pray that you'll help us to trust him, to live lives of holiness and godliness while we wait. And we pray that in your kindness and your mercy, you will help us to be so filled with joy that we cannot help but share and tell others of all that you have done for us. We pray to be faithful in these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.